Welcome to Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. This is Peter Roseberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. What's a family caregiver? I've been getting that question a lot as my new book is out and I'm talking to some folks in the press and they want to know what's the difference between a caregiver and a family caregiver. Well, the first thing is a paycheck. How many of you all are getting a paycheck as a caregiver for your parent, your special needs child, your spouse, brother, sister, cousin? Whoever it is you're caring for, are you getting paid for that? <laughs> Chances are you're not. If you are, you are awesome, and I'm glad you are getting paid for doing it. Most of us do not. I keep sending invoices to Gracie, and she sends it back and says, Are you out of your mind? No, she doesn't. I don't do that. But that is the difference, because most of us are not professionals at what we do. Now, some of us are doing it, and we're professionals, but you're not getting paid for that either. You're just doing it because you are a professional. If there's a nurse in the in the household, chances are the nurse is going to be tasked with the caregiving responsibilities. But we're not trained to do this. I mean, I went to music school, for heaven's sakes. This is embarrassing, but why should I stop now? I've been embarrassing myself for years on the air. But I remember going into the first corporate job that I ever had. I worked for this organization, and they wanted to have an employee meeting in the break room to talk about benefits. Well, I didn't know what benefits were. I, I thought they meant longer lunches and better parking. <laughs> I really didn't know. So uh, that's where I started from. And I have the feeling that a lot of caregivers are in the same boat, that we start from the same place of, of just overwhelmed. We don't know where this is going or what to do or who to call or anything like that. And then we become defensive. We become resentful. We become fearful. All of those things seem to pile on to an already difficult journey. So this program is designed to help you step back a little bit. Let's find some solid ground. Let's catch our breath. And let's build some confidence that we all can have in our journey as caregivers. We're high-functioning multitaskers. That's what I tell people. We're high. Fun- Do you feel like a high-functioning multitasker? Well, that's what I am. And I have a feeling that most of you all are as well. But this program is designed specifically to give you a bit of an emotional respite. Let's just take a a deep breath. And let's figure out ways for you to be a calmer, healthier, and dare I say it, a more joyful caregiver. All right? That's the agreement I have with you. If you'll give me a little bit of time, I will delve into things that... I think that you will find very helpful, and it will strengthen you for the journey. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as Thomas Chisholm wrote in the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And speaking of, if you give me time, give me just one minute. One minute. My new book is called A Minute for Caregivers, When Every Day Feels Like Monday. And it contains one-minute chapters. You can literally read them in one minute. I know, I timed them. And there, there, I didn't even put a table of contents in the book. You can pick it up and go to any page you want to, and you will find something that's going to encourage you as a caregiver and strengthen you, give you just-in-time help. I mean, not just, you know, be nice to yourself and be kind. I'm not giving you Hallmark cards. I'm giving you 37 years of caregiving experience 
condensed into one-minute chapters. And if you'll give me one minute, I promise you I'll point you to safety. The thing about doing this for as long as I have is you you know where a lot of the landmines are. I haven't found all of them, but I've found quite a few. <laughs> if, you, if you see me in person, you'll know that I've found a few. You don't look this way for nothing. <laughs> I told Gracie the other day, I looked in the mirror and all I saw was a fat old ugly man looking back at me. I said, you got to say something nice to me. Give me some kind of encouragement. She said, well, your eyesight's perfect. No, I'm just kidding. That's old Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> but, you know, when you've hit these kind of landmines like I have, uh, you you know, you can tell, and I can see it in others. And one of the uh, chapters from my book I put out in the podcast, you can go out and take a listen to it if you want. Uh, it's at hopeforthecaregiver.com. And you can also sign up for the Facebook group. I post those in the, our Facebook group which is Hope for the Caregiver, you can also sign up for our newsletter. And I send those out as well every Wednesday. I usually send one of these out. But the most recent one is called Harsh Judgment. And this is from my book, Harsh Judgment. And that already, well, harsh judgment seems to be descriptive of so many of our lives. But sometimes that harsh judgment comes in unexpected ways. I, I don't know if you all remember this or not, but I had a couple on the program some months ago, they adopted a little girl, and unbeknownst to them, she was from a line of family members that had Huntington's disease, and it didn't manifest itself until much later. And then this daughter then had a little child, uh, and that child ended up getting Huntington's disease as well. The daughter died. Uh, the parents raised now their daughter and their granddaughter with Huntington's disease. It, it was incredibly traumatic for them. At one point, they had to go before a judge because the daughter had been acting out so horrifically that arrests were made, police were involved. It, it was it was a bad scene. And the judge from the bench said, "Well, this must be bad parenting." And she laid this on the parents. This is bad parenting. The judge had no clue of the ravages of Huntington's disease and what it does to an individual and their family. A five-minute search or phone call by the judge would have provided a bigger picture of the nature of this disease. But the judge was just, yeah, just bad parenting. Both of these parents were PhDs, and they were both on the program, and they told me here on this program, we had to take it on the chin. We couldn't defend ourselves in court. The judge just casually dismissed and said, we're just bad parents. An uninformed judge just casually pronounced judgment on a family that was hurting and struggling and never bothered to ask why, never did any kind of search, never asked anybody. That's just bad parenting. But while the judge's comments remain grievous, how many caregivers put on that black robe ourselves as judge and make harsh and ill-informed pronouncements upon ourselves in the mirror? Have you ever done that? You ever judged yourself harshly, putting on that black robe? Countless caregivers spend way too much time condemning themselves for the out-of-control behavior of someone else. Now, I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about all the things that you wish that judge had said to that couple. 
take just a moment just to do it. Think about it. They're, they're sitting there. This, this child has been arrested repeatedly. She has acted out. She has been, it's been horrific. And the judge is looking at a piece of paper. And if the judge had been informed, if the judge had any understanding of HD, what would you have wanted that judge to say to that couple? Whatever that is, that is worthy of you writing down on a post-it note and putting on your bathroom mirror so that you say it to yourself every morning. Whatever you wish that judge had done for that couple, whatever compassion that judge had shown for that couple, that is worthy of saying to ourselves. How many of us just casually dismiss ourselves and just berate ourselves or say things that are uninformed, not realizing the brutality of what it is we're trying to shoulder without having any perspective. What we're doing is extraordinary. We're attempting the impossible. And I'm going to go one step further and tell you, imagine what God says to you. He's the only one in a position to judge. And what does he say to you? There is no greater love than someone lay down their life for another. You want to hang on to that one for a little bit? That's from my book, A Minute for Caregivers. There's more in there as well. You can go out to wherever books are sold and certainly go out to the website, hopeforthecaregiver.com. We have a wonderful guest coming up in the next segment. Actually, I'm going to give her the rest of the program if she'll take it. Beth Marshall. She's going to talk about her journey through grief and her new book, Uncrushed. Okay, so don't go away. There's more to go. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. Healthy caregivers make better caregivers. We're going to get healthier together. All right, we'll be right back. We live in a day when America's families are under attack like never before. Buddy Smith, Senior Vice President of the American Family Association. The war against biblical principles rages on numerous fronts. The Internet, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., America's corporate boardrooms, and the list goes on. At American Family Association, we're committed to standing against the enemies of God, the enemies of your family. And we recognize it's an impossible task without God's favor and your partnership. Thank you for being faithful to pray for this ministry, to give financially, and to respond to our calls for activism. What you do on the home front is crucial to what we do on the battlefront. We praise God for your faithfulness. And may He give us many victories in the battles ahead as we work together to restore our nation's biblical foundations. latest violent attack. Abortion continues to be a hot-button issue. Man, it seems like the news gets worse every day. I can't even watch it. There's just nothing but bad news. You want some good news? Jesus loves you. Yeah, right. What does that mean? It means Jesus, who was actually God in human form, suffered and died to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me. He took the blame for all the sin in the world and then suffered and died so that we wouldn't have to be punished. So what? I'm not a sinner. (laughs) Actually, we're all sinners. But God says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we'll be saved. That sounds like good news. Is it true? Here, let me show you in the Bible. 
Share the good news today. A reminder from American Family Radio. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. I got to meet a lady from my hometown in Anderson, South Carolina. She is uh, now living up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, which is just right up the road. I used to backpack all up in there. And her name is Beth Marshall. She's written several books, including A Time to Heal, grief survivor and her new book is called uncrushed and beth is joining me today we're going to talk about grief we're going to talk about healing we're going to talk about hope we're going to talk about all the things that involve in moving someone through in and even out of a place of great sorrow into a healthier stronger life you never get rid of the sorrow i mean it's it's part of you but you are not doomed to it Uh, And I believe this is where Beth's heart's going to really come through. So Beth, welcome to the program. Thank you. This is so much fun to uh, visit Montana without having to get on the airplane. (laughs) Well, and I get to visit back in the Carolinas. Uh, Beth and I understand each other. We don't need subtitles because we are from the same part of the country. So we we, we understand The Queen's English is what we call that. And (laughs) we we butcher it. Well, now we can't call it the Queen's English. We have to call it the King's English. Oh, oh, uh, you're right. I, I guess, My bad. Uh, unless we're living under Queen Victoria, uh, but it's uh, <clears throat> Beth and I may lapse into cornbread and skins, hot dogs, and all types of other things from our neck of the woods. So if if we do that, you will uh, indulge us on that. But Beth, tell me a little bit about your background. You were with Delta for 25 years. Were you with Delta always, or did you ever work with Eastern? Oh, thankfully not. Can I say that out loud? Um, (laughs) They're no longer in existence. (laughs) Right, right. I was from Atlanta. And so Delta, you know, your options were kind of Coca-Cola, the Atlanta Braves or Delta. And after teaching. Or the varsity or the varsity. Oh, gosh, don't even get me started. Would that be delicious (laughs) right now? I know it's a little early in your time zone. Yeah, but it's never little, it's never too early for the varsity. Never, ever. But um, it was after teaching a couple of years, and I realized that I thought that was my dream of my life and was cut out for it until I showed up the first day, and I looked up at the clock, and it was 11 o'clock, and all these people were still there, and they had already eaten lunch. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be kind of a long day. But I, I did enjoy teaching. It was um, in part of Atlanta. It was called Meadowview School, and it was uh, interesting. But after the second year, I knew that it it was time for something different and uh, applied with Delta. I thought I would hate hotels, which turned out to be the opposite of the truth and thought, well, reservations would be awesome, you know, and be home every night. Turned out that um, working the in-flight department as a flight attendant, uh, ultimately flying to Europe, which was so it was so much fun. It um, just studied some languages so that I could fly to Germany and to France. And so that was very cool back in the beginning. You know, the worst job there is in lost luggage because, you know, those people are going to show up every day and not have a good day. Oh, everybody's mad at you every time. (laughs) 
No one comes in smiling for sure. I think I had it a little easier than that crowd because there would be some, there would be a lot of people that would be acting pretty kind and nice. And this was back in the day, Peter, when people would like dress up to fly, it was kind of a big deal to fly. And so it was a little bit different than it's gotten. It was before 9-11, before all the security and all that craziness started. Well, I remember those, and Gracie still dresses up to fly. Yeah. As she we should. Does. She she yeah. does not go. She said, look, I'm just, that's the way I was raised. Her dad, her, uh, her grandfather worked for Braniff Airlines. You remember them? Oh yeah. Yeah. I do and, remember. A uh, long time ago, but, but she used to fly, I mean, from as a little child with her grandmother and so forth. And she always dressed up and she still does much to my chagrin because Gracie <laughs> has to have everything in place, all the jewelry and everything. Well, go, go try going through TSA with jewelry and everything else. And you also got prosthetic legs and, yeah. and it just, you know, finally I got her, we kept missing appointments to get her TSA pre-checked. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> because she kept having hospital visits or doctor visits or whatever, and we kept missing it. Finally, I got it done because we were back and forth to Denver a lot. And it has made all the difference in the world because the TSA was so thorough with Gracie, it saved me three primary oh. care visits. I mean, it's just yeah. overwhelming when you have somebody with disabilities. <laughs> and, can't then, even... and then she has to have big belts with, you know, they look like WWE belts, you know, with, with you know, she has, she, she loves jewelry. And she says, look, if you can't see the jewelry from the back row, it's not big enough. That's the way she Girl, feels. You tell Gracie, I'm on her team. Gracie, if you're around right now, I want you to know I am on your team. Uh, and you just wear all the things that you need. But I want to be on my team. team. I'm the one that has to no. to schlep all that stuff. Sorry. I hate it. I hate it. for. But yeah, yeah, yeah. At least you don't have to take your shoes off anymore. With well, TSA they wanted, one time they wanted to take her feet shells off. She has oh, foot okay. shells on her person. No. And that's when I looked at the guy and he's holding one. And I said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. And I Could wheeled be. her out there. And I that was in Orlando where I, I really struggled with my my Christianity in Orlando airport. <laughs> I freely admit that. And Denver airport is not much better for me, but yeah. I'm, I'm trying, but getting her pre-checked has been a, a blessing. So I, I share mm -hmm. with you your excitement of, of flying and she shares yeah. with you your excitement of dressing up for the flight. You got to do what makes you feel fine. And I'm on her team with that. Sorry, Peter. Well, <laughs> I, that's okay. I, I'll just, I'll just muddle along here. Uh, so right. you, you did this for a while, 25 years yep. with Delta. And then after nine 11, things really, really changed. And I know they did for everybody, but in the airline business, I remember my kids asking me, right. And I was home when it happened and the littlest one said, mom, do you go to work today? I said, Oh no, baby, I don't. She said, if you had to go to work today, would you go? I said, Nope, I wouldn't. And uh, thankfully, Delta and a lot of the airlines were letting people that just needed time away to for a minute to do that. And, and everything kind of changed. And so after that, um, I ended up, I don't even know the time frame of years, but ended up um, going on staff at New Spring Church in Anderson as the care ministry coordinator. And it was a totally different life, but I loved it. I've always felt kind of called to uh, just the hard times. Whenever people are struggling, they're the one that I tend to want to talk with. And so um, did that for a while. And during that time, started losing some close family members. And that's when 
and it led to writing some books, but I know we'll probably talk about that later on. Well, tell me about when you started losing family members, you're the care coordinator at this massive yeah. church there yeah. in my hometown and where, and well, that's not your hometown, is it? Anderson? No, I grew up in Atlanta and then lived in Boston a little bit, but we ended up in Belton just outside of Anderson okay, where yeah. you were. Um, yeah. And well, so, uh, yeah, the difference between, by the way, Atlanta and Boston, I'm sure you found out is in Boston, they leave the R's out of words like Phi and Kai and Pike. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. But in Atlanta, we add them back in down in the South, like Winder and Yeller. <laughs> and uh, so. <laughs> in fact, the person who introduced me to my husband now uh, was um, in the in-flight area. He was a supervisor. And he said, hey, Paul, you need to meet this girl. She talks just like you. And he was from there. And we were both from the South. And people um, thought that we needed to meet because we could understand each other. We had that I, language we could she's, get. She's wicked funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love that word. I love that wicked word. Wicked funny. As you started, as you lost one, then multiple, it started, yeah. it, it kind of dominoes on you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. What was, my mom was the first one. And then a couple of years later, my dad, and then a sister-in-law that was as cool as any sister that's ever been. She's the one that let me drive her dune buggy to high school. Peter, can you imagine being that cool as a 17 year old? (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, just a really close sister-in-law. It was just several family losses. The most difficult was really my mom. And uh, I just remember the shock of it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. But the first few weeks were so, I guess we were anesthetized a little bit. And I know most of your listeners have probably been through this where everything is just kind of a blur. And you're so busy taking care of things and people coming around. And I think I had gotten in my head that, oh, this is not so hard. I mean, what's the big deal? (laughs) Until about two weeks out, everything got real quiet. Um, For the beginning, people were bringing all these flowers and telling you stories about her and um, just um, taking meals to you. And I thought, dude, this is awesome. We're going to have chicken pie in the fridge forever. I'm never going to cook again. Um, And we'll always have these big old Gerber daisies because those were her favorite. And then once people start, and I know that that you get this, once people start kind of getting back in their own lives, you can feel like, oh boy, this is not so easy. And the reality hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, I can remember, I'd never really experienced it up close Because as a child, we were kind of um, not allowed into the sorrow. Uh, It was like, y'all go jump on the trampoline. We'll be fine. And our parents would go and take care of all the funeral things and visit. So I'd never really been part of that. And I would just say to anybody that has children or teenagers, it's a disservice to not include them in this part of real life. Um, And so I just remember thinking, I don't know how to do this and feeling really stuck and overwhelmed in that. I, I get that. I've um, I've had the opportunity since I've been a kid. I've, Dad was preacher there in South Carolina, and mm-hmm. I've been involved in funerals uh, mm-hmm. because I played the piano, and I was conscripted oh. sometimes into that, and I was cheap labor. Uh, you know, and, uh, but yeah. it was you're right you you do a disservice to folks if you don't engage them because it can be so jarring 
yeah. And I, I get that. And I know this audience gets that. And it's also another opportunity to minister, to sit with people. One of the things I love about the Jewish faith is the, the shiva that they oh, yeah. have. Is they, they just sit with them. Don't talk. Yeah. You just sit. And if, the, if yeah. the bereaved want to talk, then they can initiate it. But it's the I am here moment. I am present yeah. with you in this yeah. Yeah. where we, we walk through this as, a, as friends, as family, as a group. But we're not sitting there trying to make small talk. Uh, we're just being with each other, and I and I love that. I think that's incredibly healthy. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Beth Marshall. She is a author and a fellow South Carolinian, uh, and which is why I, you know you you know she had me at South Carolina, and, and so I'm I'm grateful to have her here to talk about uh, her new book, Uncrushed. We'll get to that in just a moment. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Larry the Gable Guy, and you are listening to Hope for the Caregivers with Peter Rosenberg. And if you're not listening to it, you're a communist. I'm going to tell you something. If you don't have a plan going into adversity, you won't do very well with it. Sooner or later, all of us face it of one kind or another. Unexpected, unannounced, uncharted, unplanned. What do you do? Join Dr. David Jeremiah as he shares his message, Psalm for a Dark Night, next time on Turning Point Weekend Edition. Listen to Turning Point, Sunday mornings at 7 o'clock Central on American Family Radio. Do you want your life to really matter? Here's Pastor Jeff Shreve. You want to make the rest of your life the best of your life? It's not going to happen unless you put God's action plan into practice in your life. And you will have the experience one day of standing before the Lord and hearing Him say to you, Well done. Discover how you can hear God say, Well done. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve on From His Heart each weeknight at 6 Central here on American Family Radio. The Raising Godly Boys Minute with Mark Hancock. Do your kids believe it is better to give than receive? Science shows that children are born with a compassionate instinct. They observe that infants help others even though they are too young to have learned this behavior themselves. Their motivation doesn't depend on the expectation of a reward. As parents and father figures, it's our job to encourage our children to be givers, not takers. Takers are selfish. They seek to be better than others. Givers are generous. They want to bring out the best in others. Here's a tip from psychologist Adam Grant. Say, thank you for being a helper, instead of thank you for helping. Recognizing kids as helpers helps them to internalize giving as part of their identities. For more information about raising your son into a godly man, visit Trail Off USA or RaisingGodlyBoys.com. Find free resources to help you at RaisingGodlyBoys.com. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver, hopeforthecaregiver.com. We are continuing our conversation with Beth Marshall. She is the author of the new book, Uncrushed, from uh, Endgame Press. Uh, and by the way, we're talking about grief, and we're talking about mourning and time to heal. And then you've got Endgame Press. And I, yeah. and I thought, those are not related, are they? <laughs> not at all. I hadn't thought of Endgame. those three in the same context. Uh, 
But no, we're we're thrilled to have you. Beth is yeah. uh, from South Carolina, where I am from. Uh, she lived there for many years. Now she's retired up to. Uh, well, you're not retired, but you have not really. uh, sojourned yeah. up to the mountains yeah. there in North Carolina, where it's just nice and cool in the in the oppressive summers of the South. I am grateful that I am not participating in that. I get calls yeah. back from my parents, my family that lives back there. Uh-huh. You know, the heat index is one thousand degrees, kind of thing. Yeah. It we're gonna have. 70s and no humidity for the next 10 days that I can see. Okay. Do you know how rude that is right now yeah. for you well, to tell us? We make up for it in the winters. I promise you. Okay. We make up for it in the winters. Because <laughs> when, you. you when you're out feeding the horses and it's 20 below, I had three feet of snow on our deck May 1st. Oh, okay. That makes you lose your cheerful disposition a little bit, yeah. doesn't it? You were you had flowers on right. May 1st. Yeah, I had three feet of snow, so it gets it gets a little gnarly out here in Montana. Yeah, as we left of the break, you started losing family members, and you didn't know what to do. You didn't right. know where to go. You felt the vacuum of silence and loneliness. Yes. What did you do? The, I didn't do the right thing. I, I, mean, I was thinking about your listeners this morning and how it's so easy to get isolated, and people really don't know you're there. And I think that's what happened. I was so determined to pretend like I was okay and to keep smiling and to try to be cheerful for the kids and my husband. And But the minute they would leave in the morning, I'd collapse. And I realized it took me a while. I was, I'm pretty much of a junior varsity griever. It took a while to figure out you need people, you need people that pray and uh, you need to write. That was the one thing that I felt like I got the biggest breakthrough. When one morning, it had been, I don't know, nine or 10 months, and I was just not coping well. My mom was a very cool person, great, full of life, and there was no warning. And so when she was gone, I just didn't really have any tools. And so I started writing. And one morning, I felt the Lord nudge me to write about her. And I thought, oh, oh, yeah, that would be fun. And I just started writing stories of growing up in this big, loud house with five kids and two crazy canines. And uh, it was just so much fun and chaos. And it was a welcoming place. But I wrote the stories down and I started recording them in really my prayer journal. And literally, I sat this one day for about two hours and just scribbled and scribbled. And by the time I was done, I can remember just giggling and kind of laughing a little bit again. And I wrote the story about the day, this was before security, when she was so sad that I had to fly on New Year's Day. And I didn't care. The holidays were great fun being with new people and traveling. So I was okay with it. But she said, well, I'm going to bring something to the airport for you. And I said, what, mom? And she shows up with our family tradition on New Year's Day of sauerkraut and pork and mashed potatoes and all this stuff that our family had. Wait, 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 wait. wait. uh, Where were the black eyed peas? Oh, see, my parents are from another part of the country. They're from um, Pennsylvania. And so our traditions were a little more German. I've had to learn. I've had to learn how it's supposed to be celebrated. So you're saying that she showed up without cornbread? Without Without cornbread, without black eyed peas. So what was she thinking? But she showed up with this stinky. God love her. I know this stinky German tradition. But I, I but I I love German food. I love it. My mother, though, used to always make, speaking of stinky, collards for New Year's Day. Oh, gross. I'm sorry. I There's know. just not she any excuse for that. 
Oh, she no. still loves them. And, no. uh, you know, I, uh, there's no. the, there's a whole collared eating group of this audience. And I know I'm going to get letters. Please right. understand. It's not personal. I could never get collards and I'm, yeah. I am a child of the South. So right. anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. Yeah. I told you the Carolina is going to come out at us. I'm so sorry. I, I apologize. <laughs> it for just that. does. It just does. Okay, so here I am at the gate. I mean, you could walk straight to the gate, not have a ticket, nothing. And so she meets me right outside of the jetway practically and hands me this. And I said, Mom, I got to run. Go and pop it in the oven, in the first class oven on the 727 and turned it on full blast and just ran back to do my work. And in about 10 minutes, it smelled like something had exploded on the Delta airplane. And um, I think we were about to evacuate and blow all the slides. It was so <laughs> horrible. But I just, I mean, I laugh about it because, well, first of all, it was so generous and so cool of her to not want me to be left out. Um, but this nasty tradition, I was not able to eat it. It was just so disgusting. But I don't even know if that plane is still in service. It's probably not. They probably had to send it to the hangar. But there were so many stories that were bringing me great joy. And what I found was that by remembering those things, that it was helping me know that I wasn't going to forget about her and to write them down. And that became kind of a, a theme of my life of how I try to help other people with grieving and even people that you deal with all the time, people that you help um, to get a journal and just write, scribble down in there. Were you a writer before all this? Not really. Um, and so I just, well, it started as a prayer journal and I was just scribbling. I just had so much anger and so much you know, worry. And what about, what about Christmas? What about forever? And she'll never know these grandchildren. And what I found that by writing those things down in a journal and just really turning those prayers over to the Lord, it would take them off of my heart and to give me a lightness. And I think there's probably somebody listening who might need to hear that. Um, you feel like you can't say everything to everybody because you don't want to be complaining your whole life away. But that journal was a place where I could go and be, I mean, brutally unscripted, unfiltered, and just scribble, write it all down. What I saw over the years was I could see a difference in my writing. I could uh, sense that I was actually beginning to heal. The emotions were changing, but that was really the place that gave me one of the greatest breakthroughs um, during that intense loss also, Peter, as just a couple years later than my dad died, not quite as suddenly, I felt a little more equipped. It was still really hard, but I felt a little more equipped. And, and I had learned, don't do this by yourself. Don't try to fly solo through some of the toughest moments of your entire life that you need people. And I think we need to say yes and we need to, I don't know, if, has anybody ever told you that fine is a four-letter word? Um, I was saying fine all the time, not the bad kind that got you in trouble in middle school, but fine is a four-letter word because it keeps us stuck. It lets people think, oh, she must be doing great. She doesn't need me to come by. She doesn't need to go get coffee with me. She doesn't need me to bring her a meal. And, and I think when I learned over time to just be honest, to quit pretending like everything was okay when it wasn't. And that's when people come in and help you. That is when, and I think especially for caregivers, I think for many of you, I know have been doing this for years and years and years. 
and you can feel like you've been kind of forgotten. But even just to let a pastor, a counselor, a friend at church, let somebody know, hey, you know what? I'm still struggling. This is kind of hard. This is really hard. But I think we'll be surprised that people really do want to be there for us. People do want to walk with us. They do. But I think we've got to let them. We need to learn a couple of things about that. And, and you're right. First off, journaling is a huge way to do this. And I, I never had any aspirations to be a writer. You should have seen my, my academic record. Um, There is a reason, there is a reason I graduated. Thank you, Lottie. But (laughs) I I just, um, I I never dreamed of it, but when I started writing, it helped me organize my thoughts. Yeah. So I had clarity of thought that I did not have before I started writing. And then the other thing is what you said is, is, fine as a four letter word. We, we do have this surfacey thing. We tell people because we're not mm-hmm. really in tune. When I ask caregivers, when they come on this program, I always ask callers, for example, how are you doing? They said, well, she just got home from the hospital or we're oh. having a, they don't know how to speak in first person singular. Or mm. they say, well, I'm doing it fine. And I said, I'm not sold on this. You want to go deeper. Yeah. And that's where the stammering and the stuttering and the crying comes. Because they're not used to using those words. And I want to give them a place on this program. And when I talk with them and I have a caregiver support group, I've started to say, you know, to to let the stammering and stuttering be what it's going to be. Let's, let's get it out. Um, Yes. Because we, you're right. If you keep this stuff contained, it, it, that is unsustainable. It will come out. It'll either come out in a constructive, cathartic, healthy way, or it's going to come out in a very destructive way. Oh Yeah. And often it's yeah. self-destructive. Yeah. And and so I want to um, switch gears a little bit, and, and yeah. we're, we're going to end up going to the break, but that's okay. We'll 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 pick right back up. So you wrote a time to heal, and you wrote yeah. grief. You wrote grief survivor. Yeah. And now this new book, uncrushed. Yes. Uh, what was the the impetus behind that one? I think what I've seen over the years is that there are people who, when something horrific happens, and I know there's trauma that is indescribable, indescribable, how do you say it? Indescri- thank you, indescribable. But I'm just along for the ride people- here, Beth. Yeah, same <laughs> here. Yeah. But people who make the decision, well, this has happened to me, so this is who I am. I And I think you there, there are times when we lose our desire or our ability to think that there would be hope one day. And that is the crowd that that is part of the audience that I hope will read Uncrushed. Um, But what I wanted to do with this book is to interview people, interview people who have had deep, deep loss, deep love, but who have found a life that they love again. And the common thread, and this is kind of the secret sauce that I'll tell you more about after the break, but it's faith. And it's, that's the one thing that the people that I've interviewed, the ones who have found a life they love again, are people who believe that God will do what he says he can do. The whole book was based really on Psalm 34, 18, where it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, but he is going to rescue us when we're crushed in spirit. And crushed in spirit is what I think a lot of people are feeling right now just kind of across the country and people who are dealing with hard things. And so that scripture is true, not just for someone who's lost a loved one, but for someone who's was taken by a huge surprise and is now caring for someone full-time or part-time. But I think that the truth in God's word has, has helped the people. I think it's maybe 
15 people whose stories I tell. And so it's a, a real easy thing to read. There's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of my mom busy stories and some other stories of people who have come gone through the deep, deep valley, but they didn't set up camp there. They decided, mm, yes, right. I'm well, going through this, but there's hope. We're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. This is Peter Rosenberger. We're talking with Beth Marshall. Her new book is called Uncrushed. This is Hope for the Caregiver. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. We'll be right back. I'll never forget walking into the hospital room after Gracie had her second amputation. Both legs are gone now. And she looked at me. She said, I know what I'm going to do. And I was kind of startled. I said, well, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to help provide prosthetic limbs to my fellow amputees and tell them about Jesus. And I said, well, baby, can we get out of the hospital first? But she never let it go. And for almost 20 years, we've been working out of Ghana, West Africa. We treat patients all over there from other countries that come there. We send supplies. We send teams. We sponsor patients. We work with a prison where inmates volunteer to disassemble used prosthetic limbs so we can recycle the parts. All of this because Gracie trusted God with her heartache. We've got a huge shipment of supplies that is being loaded up right now to go out soon. Would you help us do it? Standingwithhope.com slash giving. Standingwithhope.com slash giving. There's prosthetic feet, knees, pylons, sleeves, adapters, all kinds of connectors. All of these things we are sending over there so that people can walk. We're going to point them to Christ. Help us out. Standingwithhope.com slash giving. Hey friends, it's Jessica Peck, Dr. Nurse Mama as your one-minute parenting coach. Who listened to you most generously as a child? Who gave you their time and full attention? Generous listening invites a posture of curiosity. You have to be vulnerable and willing to be surprised. Let go of your assumptions and be willing to accept you can't fix everything. We often listen to our teens defensively, focusing our thoughts on what we want to say. Our goal is managing their behavior when it should be pursuing their heart. I challenge you to nurture curiosity in your conversations with your teen. Ask questions. Be vulnerable. Don't try to fix it. Listen generously. I'll see you on the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast here on American Family Radio. He will be strong to deliver me safe and the joy Welcome back to Hope of the Caregiver, hopeofthecaregiver.com. I'm Peter Rosenberger. Glad to have you with us. We are talking with Beth Marshall. She is a fellow South Carolinian, and I'm just thrilled to have her here. If, you, if we sound alike, if we have similar experiences, you'll just have to pardon it while we have a Carolina moment. But she's talking about her new book, Uncrushed, and she was relating in the last segment that the stories that she tells in this of people she's interviewed these are individuals who are united by a common theme, and I want her to just unpack that a little bit. So, Beth, tell us a little bit more about what this means. What what even gave you the idea of this? And then jump into this common theme that united them. Okay. What gave me the idea, I guess, is just um, seeing people that really feel stuck and feel like the world has gone on without them. And I, having been through this numerous times, know that there really is hope. 
and they're they're the way I look at it, Peter. And what I was looking for in the very early days was um, when our little girl said to me, "Mama." You don't look pretty anymore. You need to get a shower and put on a cute outfit and put on some makeup. We need to go shopping. And she said, just because Beezy's not your mom anymore doesn't mean you don't need to be my mom. Okay. Well, sweet Amy was 11 and she immediately burst into tears and she realized how hurtful that was. But it was just the kick that I needed to hear. I was so stuck. I wanted the fun mom to be back for my kids. I wanted the person who would let them finger paint literally on the kitchen counter with chocolate pudding. That's the person I was hoping was coming back. And I think that's what I want to help readers and listeners to do to realize that person is still in there, regardless of what you've been through or what you're going through, that that person is still inside of there. But we've got to find ways to get them back out into practical steps. I think that was the one thing that some of the people I interviewed shared. One was, I know you may know Clayton King from Anderson. He's a friend. He's an evangelist. He's kind of like Billy Graham's understudy, I think. He um, just tells people about the Lord. And that's kind of his I'm the guy, by the way, that Billy Graham once said, who? (laughs) 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 Who? That's good. That's good right there. But, Clayton is a person, huge personality. He speaks all over the place, has his worldwide ministry, but then he lost his, both of his parents within about a year and a half. I can remember it was one of, it was the hardest thing that I know he ever went through. And some days he might give us a call and say, can you guys just pray? This is so hard because with his life and his ministry, he didn't really have the luxury of just taking time and being still for very long. He took a little minute off, but then he was back on the road and it was really hard. But I can remember asking him afterwards. It was about a year or two after the loss of both of his parents. I said, did you have anything that helped you along the road during those really hard months and years? He said, yeah, I really did. I would set aside time every single day in 30 minutes or 45 if he could do it. And I know that's hard to do, but I would go into a dark place no one could disturb me, turn off the lights and just do what I needed to do. If it was take a nap, if it was to journal or to pray or to scream or to cry or whatever it was, but to be specific. And he would take designated time every single day. And he said it helped him instead of weaving and incorporating the sadness into every minute of his day, he could have designated time. And I feel like your listeners could probably do that. Their time might be five minutes because I know getting a little moment of time is really hard for a lot of people. Well, it is. You're right. It is. And, but I say to myself, I say this in my book, I say this to fellow caregivers, if we don't take time for stillness, we're going to have to make time for illness. Oh, come on. We, we are, you, you can write that down, even though. Say it, that, uh, that needs to be on your coffee cup. <laughs> say that one more time, real <laughs> slow for the people in the back. If you don't like take, me. <laughs> for the two people in the back, uh, yeah. if you don't take time for stillness, you will have yeah. to make time for illness. Oh, and, and I found that out at a very critical point in my life. And so, Last night, I can't do what some people do, and I can't take off hours or anything like that. But but last night, I got out on the horse. I wasn't planning on doing a horseback ride, but when I saw the horse, she saw me, and I think we both realized, and this is a new horse that my brother-in-law just bought, 
and I wanted to try her out. Nobody's ridden her yet here. And, and so I thought I'm going to, we're going to spend some time together. And there's nothing wrong with the inside of a man that the outside of a horse can't fix. And <laughs> that's another coffee cup. That's Will so Ro- good. No, that was Will Rogers and Ronald Reagan. But that's the kind of thing that that Clayton obviously knew that you're going to have to. It's it's got to be intentional. You have to be intentional on dealing with the heartache that we carry, and and we all carry it. Or it'll seep out in other ways, in anger or crying unexpectedly that was my big fear oh i don't want to go downtown because it was a small town we were living in in belton and the store owner of a lady's dress shop said it was two weeks out after my mom and she said so oh, hey beth how's your mom and i thought mm, bless her heart and i was just a bundle of tears and from that point on i thought i want to stay home i don't want to be around humans because that can happen again And so I think when we take some intentional time to let the tears flow, tears are really great for us. I don't know if you're a big crier. My husband's not a big crier, but whenever he can get a tear up over a Hallmark movie, it makes me feel so happy um, because I can always cry over them. But I think the Lord gave us those. I I cry if I have to watch a Hallmark movie. Let me just be (laughs) bad. I mean, that's, I I, I wail. uh, Yeah, please no. Anything but that, yeah. Well, I, I get that. For me, it's music, it's horses, it's it's. I sit at the piano and I kind of work it out. I get on a horse or a snowmobile in the wintertime and, and I have to just kind of detach for just a bit. I can't do it for lengthy periods of time, but I have to. And allow myself to be settled. There are so many distractions, and I think it's in the distractions that we find the danger when it comes to dealing with our grief. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, you're not going to be comforted if you're raging or despairing, because that's not mourning. Mourning is accepting that this has happened. This is really happening. This has happened. I'm going to accept this. And at the same time, I'm going to look unto Christ, the author and perfecter of my salvation, recognizing that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. That means he's going to preserve me in this, and he's able to present me faultless before him, but part of the sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and see what you think in the last couple of minutes we have of this, I personally think, and I think I, I think Scripture supports this, that part of the sharing in the sufferings of Christ that Scripture talks about is seeing how messed up and how broken this world is and accepting that this is, but this is what he came to do is to redeem and will we put our trust in him? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We put, he put his trust in the Hebrew. It says he put his trust in God. Can we do that? And this is what the common you, uniter for these people that you talked about in your book, Uncrushed, is that they put their trust in God, however feeble they felt like they were doing it. Oh, yeah. They still did it. Right. And I think there are days when you're maybe borrowing somebody else's faith. I think of the words in, I think it's Romans 8, somewhere where it's about when we don't have the words to pray. We don't know what to say. I can remember those moments. And I've been known to just whisper, Jesus, I need Mm -hmm. you. But I love the way that the promise that the Holy Spirit's going to come in there and pray in according with what the Lord would have us pray. And it's what we need more than some feeble words that we might come up with. And that gives me such peace. To know in those late night moments or when you're waking up in the middle of the night anxious and worried and what about tomorrow? It's like, no, let's stop right there 
And I'm reminded one more verse that I love. It's from Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I think it is. But it talks about don't be anxious, which is an easy thing to say, right? Because I think we're all kind of a little anxious if we're even here today. But to pray with thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving part is the part to me that is so important. The rest of it goes on to say that he will give us the peace of Christ and it's going to guard our hearts. And that right there, just even that little piece about with thanksgiving to me just redirects my focus in my mind. Think of all the times he has done wonderful things for us. Look back over the terrific, beautiful miracles that we've seen in all of our lives. But to take that moment when we're praying, when we're trying, when we're not being anxious, but praying with thanksgiving, but to look back at God's faithfulness. And I feel like nothing is going to strengthen us any faster, any better than those words and allow us to close our eyes and actually just go to sleep and turn that third shift. You know that the Lord works third shift all the time and that we don't really have to. So many times I've tried to think, well, I've got to be worrying about this, thinking about it all night long. And actually getting some sweet rest is one of the kindest things we can do for ourselves in those moments. That's a great word to end on with. We're talking with Beth Marshall. Beth, if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about you, get a copy of this book. I know it comes out September 26th. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? It would be BethGMarshall.com. And that site is just an encouraging site, and it's the books you can find them there to okay. send people well, to. Well, you, you find, evidently you can find the book a lot of different places. BethGMarshall.com yeah. if you want to find out more about her. Listen, right. we've had a great time. We're going to have you back on. Uh, okay. I love having you, I, you know, and you don't have to send me any kind of cornbread or black eyed peas or anything like that. But if you want a little to, sweet I, tea. well, now sweet tea is always welcome, but I usually make my own and I got a friend of mine in South Carolina who was on the program a while back and sent me up a bunch of Carolina biscuit, <laughs> you know, the, the, the mix for that. And so people don't understand how important this food is in South Carolina. It's a thing in and of itself. I love the people that move here from Australia or England and they're like, I, my body can't do this. So then you go <laughs> back where so you came different. from. I just send them on back. I mean, we didn't make y'all come over here. If you don't like our food, go on back. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Listen, Beth Marshall, it's great to have you here. BethGMarshall.com. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. We'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. 